again and welcome to I've Got a Beatles podcast with Dave and Chris. And uh, Chris, it's good to be back with you after doing an interview with Kid O'Toole in our last episode. So uh, how have you been? I've been good. I, I enjoyed listening to it. Uh, Kid O'Toole's uh, fantastic. I can't wait to meet her. Excellent. Yeah, we're going to uh, hope to meet her at the Chicago Fest for Beatle fans. And uh, if you're uh, out at the New York Fest for Beatle fans, you can also have a chance to meet her. And it's it's always great to talk to people who uh, have all sorts of ideas and talk about the same things that we do. Yeah, we're all on the same page here, even if uh, if we disagree slightly on... Like, she really didn't like Long, Long, Long. So uh, Yeah, that was an interesting uh, takeaway from that. <laughs> surprised me, but uh, uh, yeah, we're... Uh, you know we're all we're on the same team here. We are so, indeed. And in that episode, we talked a little bit about the passing of uh, the. I think most people would call him the fifth Beatle. That would be Sir George Martin, who passed away on March eighth of this year, uh, at the age of ninety. So, you know, it, it's we thought it would be a good idea and interesting to do a retrospective of George Martin's contributions and his career. Uh, but not not necessarily in just well here are our favorite tracks and all that. But uh, you know George Martin was very involved not only in the song process and writing arrangements and performing on uh, Beatles tunes, but he also had a lot of impact on decisions and and his influence was felt through other artists as well. So we're going to try to span his whole career through some questions and debates and back and forth discussions here. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this. And uh, we, we start out today's episode with the Pepperland Suite. I know that's one of your favorites. <laughs> we'll, we'll, see. we'll see about that. But uh, no, I, it's, a, it's, a nice, uh, it's a nice track. Nice yeah. way to, perfect way to open the, the, uh, the show about uh, George Martin. I, I mean, we were all very uh, saddened to hear of his loss, but... May we all make it to 90, oh. first off. Uh, and just the, the body of his work. I mean, I, I had watched the uh, documentary film, and I'm not sure if you've seen this, uh, uh, produced by George Martin. Mm, I, I got this as a, as a present uh, a few years ago and uh, watched it. It's uh, very revealing, you know, uh, and one of the big things that you learn about is his pre-Beatles career that he'd been recording uh, people for years and years and years. Uh, and that brings us to uh, our first uh, question, because a lot of these recordings wa- were comedy recordings. So the, the big question is, what do you make of uh, all of this comedy work uh, that uh, Martin did pre-Beatles, and do you think it influenced uh, uh, his work with the Beatles? Well, interesting question. So, yeah, as you mentioned, as he got his start or make it kind of became a record producer by producing a lot of these comedy albums and tracks by people who were pretty famous and are certainly still known today, like Peter Sellers and Spike Milligan and really uh, quirky English humor. Uh, I I don't know a lot of it. Uh, I did do a little bit of research and saw that uh, Peter Sellers had recorded a couple of albums singing and i did listen to some of them Uh, and one of them was directly in the the style of frank sinatra and it was kind of clever uh, yeah and made me laugh but uh you know that i i definitely think that this had an impact on what he would do with the beatles and certainly with the when they first met and george harrison said that he didn't like george martin's tie (laughs) kind of that the fact that martin was a had this dry sense of humor i think really uh, you know, made a nice connection to the the Beatles and their humor as well. So, uh, you're you're you do a lot of comedy. That's what you do. So, uh, how do you take in Martin's work here? Well, uh, uh, I was going to play a clip, and, which will illustrate something that really occurred to me when I was uh, uh, thinking about this and and uh, going through this. Is these comedy albums took a lot of work, more than you would think, and part of the thing that you have to do with it is capture the vocals uh, very crisply so you can really tell what's going on. And sometimes there's multiple characters or multiple vocals going on. Later, you know, when he's recording the Beatles, 
they've got three, four uh, vocal parts uh, happening. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that uh, I think will be illustrated in this clip. And also uh, thinking about all of the extra instruments, uh, effects uh, that, that uh, are in Beatles recordings. And in these comedy albums, they were to illustrate things happening that you couldn't see. Right. It had to illustrate the comedy. So I found a uh, clip, and I'm going to play a part of this clip from uh, Peter Sellers' comedy piece called A Drop of the Hard Stuff. So we'll listen to this, and I think this will... And, and what's happening here is uh, uh, a couple Irishmen are at a bar and getting more and more drunk, and, and it's about to... It's about to bust into a row here so let's let's uh <laughs> let's hear peter sellers drop the bottle too please john john give me the bottle will you right <laughs> i say that sounds like a a bum note you was playing there john don't tell me whether i'm playing a bum note or not i won't take that talk from anyone yet oh, oh, take that oh, you oh, oh. So there's a little Peter Sellers. I love Peter Sellers. He's, he's just hilarious. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, some of the stuff now is a little like, you know, he does a lot of ethnic kind of well, uh, characters. So it's uh, not so PC anymore, but... Uh, uh, just brilliant stuff. So that I think that shows like all those sound effects and stuff that he, he got used to having to record all the time for these comedy albums. And then it's like, oh, I need a, you know, when John's telling him, uh, you know, oh, I need something sort of carnival-y. Yeah. Or I want to <laughs> sound like the Dalai Lama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like, all right, I can okay. figure that out. But I think, too, uh, the point you were making uh, that – he was around these funny, goofy people, you know, and then here come the Beatles who are like four four of those guys. Yeah. And he just, you know, was used to being around people like that, I think. so. Yeah, and he, I think he was the, the right guy to take a chance on him too because he, he at least could see that there was some potential even if their music wasn't quite as polished as it would become. Uh, he, he thought their personality had something to show for it as well. Uh, and that that takes us into our our next early kind of question here, which is still a little bit controversial. I was looking at the Beatles Bible website uh, about this song, and uh, there there was some split comments from the readership. So we're talking about the song "How Do You Do It," which was uh, a tune that George Martin thought the Beatles should record because it was a surefire hit. And what they had presented him with wasn't so good with Love Me Do and sort of slow. And uh, it didn't seem like there was a lot to go with. So, hey, let's give these guys at least a solid hit and and record it. And so uh, I'd be curious, maybe why don't we listen to the Beatles version of uh, Mitch Murray's How Do You Do It? And then uh, see what your thoughts are on it and if George Martin was right or not. Well, so the Beatles doing How Do You Do It uh, on the recommendation of George Martin. So what do you think, Chris? Well, perhaps their heart wasn't in it. Yeah. Like they really probably didn't want to record that song. So it just feels a little weak to me compared to their uh, early other early stuff. Um, I get kind of his thought process. 
he doesn't know they're about to be the biggest thing in the entire known universe, right? <laughs> That's true. That's true. So all he's doing is trying to pick it, pick some stuff that's safe. That oh, this is going to be a hit. He and he's right. It was, was going to be a hit. Yeah. So so uh, you know, I don't I don't fault him for maybe the thought process behind it, but thank goodness they were like, mm, you know what? No. <laughs> and that he actually backed down on that. Because in other ways, he didn't back down. And I, I, we'll talk about that later. I've got yeah. to say about that uh, later in the show. Do you think Love Me Do is a better song than How Do You Do It? Yeah, yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Just barely. but Yeah, yeah it's, like, it's not, a, not a great piece of work. But I think I, I read a quote that Paul said the difference was, at least the way he saw it, the difference was that How Do You Do It was real poppy, whereas Love Me Do still had a little bit of blues. So it maybe had something... A little bit deeper to it. All the lyrics aren't very deep, but the, at least the music had a, had a little bit more influence. So that's why they liked it better. But uh, I don't know. I guess that's still up for debate. But yeah, it's it's harmless. How do you do it? It's certainly a harmless uh, <laughs> <laughs> trifle. Yeah. Well, it's a uh, uh, the Jerry and the Pacemakers version. Yeah. It's good to hear on the radio and good, 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 good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so should we take a listen to what eventually happened? Yes, uh, for comparison, why don't we play the that Jerry and the Pacemakers version? How do you do what you do to me? I wish I knew. If I knew how you do it to me, I'd do it to you. How do you do what you do to me? Yeah, so Jerry and the Pacemakers, they changed the key. It's a little bit higher. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But a lot more energy to it. A lot more energy. Yeah, it seems a little bit. They're giving it a go, at least, on that. So uh, you can uh, see why. Is, it was it, is that proof that Jerry and the Pacemakers is better than the Beatles? I, you know, I guess it, we have to have them record all the other Beatles songs. Yeah, I'd like to hear Jerry and the Pacemakers do I Am the Walrus or something yeah. and see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, at least uh, at least they, uh, the Beatles prevailed on that one. So, uh, And that, that leads us into our next discussion here. Uh, which is a really hard one, actually, because uh, it, we posted this list from the New York Times of George Martin's contributions to the Beatles songs, and it was a really neat interactive kind of chart of everything that he did, basically. Uh, and it was just so hard to pick. If we, we challenge ourselves here, pick his most effective song arrangement, and it's pretty tough. So what was your thought process before you tell us what you chose? Well, my thought process was I, I was trying to find something where he did do a lot on the track, uh, but uh, uh, something where he had to do a lot based off of uh, some vague information <laughs> from the group. And, and my thought immediately went to uh, a track we've talked about on the uh, uh, show before, but we will play, and that's uh, Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite. Where John is like, I, I, I just want to smell the sawdust. <laughs> you know, basically, it's his, his instruction. <laughs> so, you know, and uh, yeah, well, we'll take a listen and, and see how that turned out. And of course, Henry the Horse dances the walls. Performs his tricks without a sound 
And Mr. H will demonstrate Ten somersets he'll undertake On solid ground Bing, bing, some days in preparation A splendid time is guaranteed for all And tonight Mr. Kite is topping the bill So the yeah, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, that that middle section is brilliant with not only musically because it changes into a waltz, but then all the cutting up and splicing together of all those calliope sounds, and that that had to taken had had to have taken some work. Yeah, but not yeah. just that, but how he, he instructs the you know Ringo and oh and- yeah. And the the bass to sound bass sounds very much like maybe something you'd hear a little little hints of the type of music and sound you'd hear at carnivals, yeah, and fairs yeah. and things of that nature. So mm-hmm. just a brilliant, brilliant piece of work. Yeah, so, and a lot. I, I mean, most of that's uh, George Martin. Yeah, it is exactly. Uh, a lot of the whole Sgt. Pepper album is, has his stamp over it on just about every song somewhere. Yeah. So. Yeah, great choice. Yeah, what uh, about uh, what about your choice? I, I know this is a hard one to pin down. It, it is really hard, and I I've said this before on the podcast that I think one of his uh, greatest attributes and uh, a real plea here for people to take classical music uh, is his background as a classical musician and the fact that he was uh, trained as an oboist, pianist, composer uh, came through in so many different ways. And so I chose the song Because from Abbey Road because of the vocal arrangements, which are really intricate and show a great command of what we call voice leading in uh, music. So everything's really smooth, uh, very tight harmonies. And I think that song, when you hear it, it's not only the the instrumental sounds, the, the guitar arpeggios and things, but it's the those vocals that just stand out, the three-part harmony of John, Paul, and George. And so I thought we could uh, take a listen and hear some of George Martin's uh, arranging skills on Because. Oh no, we gotta pot this down and talk talk again. Yeah. Instead of listening to the whole thing. It's so well done. And and like you said before, I think this came about from another one of John's sort of vague conceptions here. Oh, it's the moon Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata chords played backwards. Now yeah. let's make a song out of it here. Yeah. <laughs> and then he man, George Martin manages to arrange the harmonies as as they did, and it really is brilliantly done. Yeah. I think John sometimes in later interviews was a little too dismissive of George Martin and how George could take his 
sort of <laughs> harebrained uh, ideas. Yeah. I mean, really genius, genius thoughts and actually put them into action. You know, I mean, what a great example. I mean, the, yeah. those harmonies are. And of course, you know, we've all heard the uh, anthology version with the. Oh, yeah. With the, the instruments, instruments stripped away. It's just mm-hmm. stunning. Yeah, it is. Uh, our next subject is about the contributions from George Martin in terms of his instrumental arrangements on the movie soundtracks and uh, elsewhere. And I know actually you're a big fan of some of the instrumental versions and uh, instrumental tracks, but I'm curious your thoughts on uh, how they fit in like Yellow Submarine and Hard Day's Night and all and Mystery Tour, Magical Mystery Tour. Well, I think they're all very clever. Like particularly the A Hard Day's Night was really good with uh, hearing some of the songs in different iterations. Yeah. I'm I'm a little on the fence about uh, all of his instrumental work because I don't really, I don't know about you, but I don't really listen to it no, that often. No, and they're they're generally the only skippers are the all of the <laughs> all of the Yellow Submarine second side, you know. Just, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I don't need to, I don't need to flip the side. I don't no, because listen it, to that. So it but, works. It works in the movie, but I don't know if you'd want to actually listen to it much on its own. Yeah, but that but what sways me back is that's the purpose of it. Yeah. The purpose of it is to aid the film. And in that in that sense for all of those uh three four films, I think he did an excellent job with with that. So but, do you when you listen to a like say you watch a movie and you download or listen to the soundtrack, do you enjoy listening to just the instrumental music by itself or do you just listen to the tunes that are by are actually real songs i I don't usually listen to the instrumental film yeah soundtracks yeah i have before there are some i I like that i think are underrated but uh star wars yeah oh yeah Yeah. star wars is great and uh, uh one one uh sort of recent one is the the film all is lost has just a, a great soundtrack, mm-hmm. but uh, you know. So sometimes I do, but I, I, not very often. Right? No, I don't think many people do. No, no, I don't <laughs> think so. You buy the buy it for the famous song in the movie or songs. Yeah, Remember, exactly. uh, the first Batman movie had a soundtrack that was just the music, the Danny Elfman music. Mm-hmm. But then it had the Prince soundtrack with all of the Prince songs. Yeah. So which one was the million seller? I don't know. I have to think about that for a minute here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it's still still important and definitely did spent a lot of time. George Martin spent a lot of time on all these arrangements and helping out with the movies. So for that, we're grateful. Now you, you you need to tee up this next one because it's this is could be up there in maybe the top five most debated Beatle issues of all time. Yeah, and we talked about this before uh, on an episode many of you may not have heard. And I I might even suggest not going back to here because of the poor audio quality of it. We might need to do a redux at some point. But uh, should the Beatles have taken uh, George Martin's advice and made the White Album only one disc? Yes. We did a... We we did a... (laughs) experiment with this where you and I created uh, a white album and an off-white album. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so we did make the one disc uh, from this. Now, what do you think? Well, yeah, it, it, I, I, it's good. I don't remember anything that I said on episode one, so, it's, <laughs> <laughs> so I can come to this with fresh ears. But I think it depends. My my answer would be based on what your purpose is. And I would say if George Martin, seeing the Beatles as a hit producing group, even with, uh, you know, Revolver and Sgt. Pepper, they still had singles that came maybe not off the albums, but certainly at the same time, then I could see why he would want a one disc set that would be, a little more compact, have more of the rocking tunes or more of the the actual tunes and fewer of the experiments and like Revolution 9 or Wild Honey Pie or things that are not really great songs necessarily like in a traditional sense. But 
I also would say, disagree with him and think, well, the Beatles are who they are at this point. They're the most famous group in the world and really can do anything they want. And part of the White Album is part of its interest is the fact that there's so much stuff on it and it's all so diverse and that uh, if you look at it from that perspective as a as a piece of work uh i think it makes sense to make it two albums so i'm kind of hedging my bets here and not giving yeah. you a <laughs> solid answer but uh i i think it depends on the purpose of what you're going for well i think uh part of the whole charm of the white album is that there's so much stuff that you wouldn't have gotten that would have just put been put to the side and we would have never got to it. So mm-hmm. we, we would not exist. We would not know these songs at all. Uh, I think one of the examples of that perhaps uh, is a song we'll play called Martha, my dear. So let's hear a little Martha, my dear, which also shows you uh, some of his great arranging. Martha, my dear. So I guess I'm trying to infer what you're, why you played that. I'm guessing you're thinking if we just made that a one disc set or one disc album, a, a song like that probably wouldn't be on there. Yeah, absolutely. I mm-hmm. think that song wouldn't be on there. Maybe Savoy Truffle doesn't yeah. make it. Maybe uh, you know, Long, Long, Long. My one of my favorites that doesn't even get recorded, <laughs> and uh, that's on you know. George's third solo album and Martha My Dear is on a Wings album on mm-hmm. Side B that we don't pay any attention to. Yeah. So so I think, yeah, <laughs> that's what I think happens to... Or, or they make a second album of sort of their cast-offs. Oh, yeah. It's not as, that's not as strong because it feels like a, a part two. Uh, I, so I, I, I like that the, the White Album exists. And you remember that there, there's a... a, a <laughs> How they how they uh, sort of button the um, conversation about the album uh, uh, the White Album in the Beatles anthology oh, yes. film. Paul. I th- I think you'll remember Paul being like, you know, shut up! It's the Beatles! It's yeah, the White it's, Album! Shut up! It's yeah, sawed off! It's the bloody Beatles! Or something. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, and that's kind of how I feel about it. I think I I, I get his point. Yeah. Oh, we we've just made two two or three legendary albums in a row. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This this could be that if we just if we just cut it down to the main. Yeah, main and tracks. It, but, and it could also be because he was sick of it too. Like the sessions were so bad that with people fighting and having problems that he just wanted to be done with it and not have these sessions drag on and on and on. And let's just get an album out and move on to something else and clear the deck. So uh, who knows? A lot of yeah. a lot of reasons. Hindsight is always uh, twenty twenty here, but uh, I'm with you. I think the White Album is stands as a unique album in the Beatles' uh, output because of a lot of reasons, and one being uh, the diversity of it and these sort of weird songs and uh, things that just sort of go together some weird way. So we're on to uh, going into the solo years now. And you started to see this happen at the end of the Beatles where uh, Paul kind of became in charge de facto and started doing more of the uh, producing and hanging out at the mixing board a little more. 
but he and George Martin of any of the Beatles worked together the most in the solo years. And yeah. uh, so the question is kind of about, do you think that George Martin let Paul have too much control in some of the solo period, especially albums like Pipes of Peace. And, uh, you know, we, the first album they really worked together, or first song, I guess, was on uh, Live and Let Die. That was a big, big deal. Yeah, uh, big hit. Yeah, big hit. And then some things later, uh, towards the end of the or early 80s, including Tug of War and Pipes of Peace. Yeah, I was going to say in the 70s, they sort of went their separate ways for the most part. Yeah. George mostly did other stuff, which we'll talk about uh, coming up. Next. Some, some some very good other stuff. But uh, when when they came back together, they did three or four albums in a row together of mixed quality. <laughs> I think that answer's probably somewhere in the middle because Tug of War was so good. Yeah. And when we talked about Tug of War on this very podcast, we talked about George saying, you know, you're not going to get away with basically <laughs> declaring to Paul, like, you're going to, you know, take a, a lot of my suggestions here, pal. You need some direction. You, you need yeah. some direction. <laughs> so I think that, that that was somewhat successful. But then again, uh, Exhibit B... <laughs> Uh, let's play a little tug of peace from Tug of <laughs> Pipes of Peace. So, what do you think? What do you oh. think? Big fan? Uh, <laughs> I'd like to say, I like to think that maybe George Martin went on vacation that day when <laughs> Paul recorded Tug of Peace, and, and then he came back and said, oh, sorry, it's already done. What's well, ready to go? Because that, that is atrocious. Ugh. Well, you know, it's very strange. We were just talking about the White Album and whether or not it should have been two albums, and I think the result would have been exactly Tug of War Pipes of Peace, mm, maybe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> just Tug of War is really, really, really strong. Yeah. a Peace is sort of a weak uh, junior sister to it, if you ask me. Yeah, it's a lot, lot more filler. Yeah. A lot more filler and a lot more... For some reason, just the it's like they listened to Tug of War and they were like, you know, the what we need is more of uh, the production we got on what you're doing. Oh, <laughs> and then they just like took that production and just slathered it all over of the second album. Yeah, yeah. It's very. It's like in a very short period of time, just uh, changing to like all this really '80s electronica stuff. Yeah, not not very good. But what was his purpose, George Martin's purpose here? Was it more of a team member like with the Beatles? I think it's more of a Paul's a lot older. It's his solo work. I, I, even though he said, you're going to listen to me and do what I say, I, I think probably the truth is the opposite, that he, he would have to just kind of serve what Paul wants to do. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. Um, Probably and and even all all that told the uh, the albums that do they are a little bit better or at least because of George Martin's contributions and uh, some of the arrangements and uh, hey produce say 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 I guess that you know that was a 
big hit, I guess. Uh, <laughs> if that is something that stands out to you. Uh, but yeah, they, I think you're right. The answer is somewhere probably in the middle about uh, George Martin's role in all those McCartney solo tracks. So that, that uh, it takes us takes us beyond uh, the Beatles here too. Uh, now, of course, uh, George Martin produced a lot of other stuff in his career. So uh, here's the question: What is George Martin's best non-Beatles track or album? Yeah, and this is really hard because if you go through and look and see the diversity of what George Martin produced, it, it you think, oh yeah, this one, this one, this one, this one. And it is pretty tough. So I, I had looked at a few, and uh, I noticed he had he had produced a couple of, of uh, James Bond movie themes. So with yeah. Matt Monroe uh, singing From Russia With Love and Shirley Bassey on Goldfinger. Thanks, Chris. I almost feel like I'm listening to it there. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Oh, Shirley was just in the room here. Yeah, anyway, yeah it was excellent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, "Live and Let Die." I thought that was that was really great. Uh, there's some other more subtle things too, like there's a song I always like called "The Moon Is a Harsh Mistress" by Jimmy Webb. So a lot of you know a lot of choices here. So uh, I'm gonna go with one that probably many others would would say as well, and that's Jeff Beck's album "Blow by Blow" from 1975, which. We played his version of She's a Woman on our one of our cover episodes, but we're going to try a different tune here, and it's uh, called Scatterbrain. Smoking. Ooh, hot hot stuff there. Yeah. He did the arrangements on that one too. Yeah. Yeah. So it's got a good f- that jazz fusion sound of the mid 70s there is uh, really prominent and I was just counting the meter of that one. I think it's 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 3 beat division for wow. all you music people out there. I think that's what I got. Let me know if I'm wrong. Uh, well, well, uh, yeah. Dave, since you since you chose a, a piece that's very challenging and, yes. and <laughs> very very a uh, uh, lot going on and very uh, uh, complicated, mm-hmm. I thought I'd go with your standard AM radio uh, <laughs> hit. He did uh, several things with this group, uh, America, uh, including the song Tin Man. <laughs> yeah, are you a fan of Tin Man? Uh, I. I'm not, I didn't choose that one. We'll, okay. I'll just leave it at that. All right. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, one song I never mind uh, hitting my radio when I'm listening to a classic rock or mistakenly turned over to a light rock station or <laughs> something like that is America's uh, uh, super mega hit, number one uh, hit song, Sister Golden Hair. And I, listening to it in this 
in this context where you listen to the production, it, it is really uh, pretty, pretty great. So uh, here's America with Sister Golden Air. Some easy listening there for you. Yeah, easy listening. But you can tell a good Beatle influence on that with the harmonies in the background. And uh, actually, although to me it sounds more like Jackson Brown or something yeah, from the seventies. Very kind of Eagles. Easy Eagles. listening is yeah, the, easy is listening the, is the you know the yeah. Eagles take it easy that kind of yeah totally stuff. So, yeah. but um, you know, I, 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 those were just a, a couple examples of many different. I mean, you mentioned some. Well, I almost picked Alfie. Yeah, yeah. the the great uh, Celia Black hit song. Yeah, another movie song. Yeah. And that's a uh, Alfie's a good one. Do a, do a search for George Martin Alfie on YouTube, and you'll get a, a a little documentary about the making of that song, which of course Burt Bacharach was also involved in. Mm-hmm. And uh, George Martin, uh, that's a very good example of him producing. Uh, George Martin and, and just having that role of producer and and kind of you know making sure everything went the the right yeah. way. Yeah. There was a yeah, there was a, a little story about how Burt Bacharach just kept making him do takes, <laughs> and George Martin's like, "What are you looking for?" And he's like, "I'm looking for the magic when her voice comes in with magic." And he's like, "Yeah, we got that on take three. So, so that was uh, that That's was great. pretty interesting. So I, I yeah. you know, uh, lots of great uh, non-Beatles work, including I don't know if you know this one, the Candle in the Wind remake that was oh yeah, nineteen ninety-seven, I think mm-hmm. for Diana for Diana, yes, yeah, that's right. Really, like you said, what we said at the beginning of the episode, just a huge career and a huge output and. Uh, yeah. Lots of different things you can choose from. So uh, there was a right after he died, there was a Spotify list that I found and am following called "This Is Sir George Martin," and it gives you a good sampling of uh, some of the other groups he worked with, as well as Beatle tracks. So yeah, yeah, well worth it. So here we go. Now the big question here to wrap up today: We're, We want to come up with what is George Martin's single greatest contribution to the Beatles? I'm going to say. The single greatest contribution to the Beatles is that very early on, he forced them to fire Pete Best and to hire Ringo. Because without that, they wouldn't have become what they did. He, he understood, he knew this group can't do it without that. And that is the single greatest, but it's that early on, he had such a tough hand and made very tough decisions probably a hundred decisions like that uh in the studio on those early albums without the those contributions early on i think they wouldn't have even got to the point where they're being experimental so i'm going to play a a, a track just to you know just to give a example of a, a early track with the ringo study steady hand why don't we play a little she loves you Thank you, Blasco Love. 
And, you know, that's such a hard thing to, like, fire a guy that's your friend that you've been mm-hmm. playing with for years and and do the, you know, hire this other guy. And, and it's a tough, tough, tough decision to make. Yeah. But uh, the way uh, George uh, Martin in some of those early things are like, well, we're just going to do this, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And that's my final word on it. Very, very much necessary for the evolution of uh, the Beatles. So I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with that. Well, I hate to be anticlimactic, but I actually had the same exact one that you did. Really? Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, we did not plan this beforehand. Uh, <laughs> I have the same one here. I said getting rid of Pete. And, yeah. And uh, I, I think it's interesting though because all of what you said is true. But yet, even though, even they, even after getting rid of Pete, he still didn't quite trust Ringo a little bit. He had to put Andy White on Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You. Just wasn't quite sure. Yeah. Just, just to have a safety a little bit in the back here. Uh, but then, obviously, Ringo showed who he is and what he could do. But, yeah, that is such a consequential decision because it just changed the whole sound of the group and... And he he could yeah. tell George Martin just could tell right away that this wasn't going to work. And yeah, yeah, we've got these other three guys who have it together, and there's sort of a you know, something missing from Pete's playing, which you can hear when you listen to the Decca tunes or things from that period. It just it's just not the same, and miss that spark. So, uh, I, yeah, we're in total yeah. total sync on this one here. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and that I think it's important. You know, you could come up with a lot of other ones like he was. He encouraged them to experiment. He uh, played played all these things. Uh, he was showing them new avenues to listen to different classical music, all this stuff. But in terms of a contribution that would be influ- uh, just impact everything, it's hard to come up with one more than that. So, I, yeah, yeah. Total, total <laughs> agreement. Wow. wow. It's rare. It is rare. <laughs> I know. And even better because we didn't discuss it. So yeah. this happened. What a tremendous career and, yeah. and 90 well-lived and yeah. productive it, years. Yeah, one or two duds stick yeah. in there. Oh, sure. Like, like he was involved with the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band soundtrack. Yeah, that's true. So there's <laughs> He produced George Burns. and uh... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And uh, there's another album called George Martin In My Life. Oh, yeah, with Jim Carrey on that uh, one? Jim Carrey and some goofiness. Mm-hmm. We are going to go out with a track from that, actually, which is uh, uh, slightly poignant. Uh, seemed goofy at the time listening to it, but now it sort of uh, seems poignant, which is uh, uh, Sean Connery doing a dramatic reading of In My Life. So uh, so that's how we'll end the episode. Uh, this was a good discussion, though. You know, uh, if you also want to go back and listen to our fifth Beatle discussion uh, in one of our early episodes, we also, uh, I think this is where we landed with that uh, George Martin was definitely the fifth Beatle. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. So So, thanks again for listening and uh, for your support. We've got a a whole slew of episodes to record uh, in the next uh, couple of months here. So we're excited to, to bring a bunch of new things and... Uh, you've suggested some ideas and got us thinking. So we look forward to uh, doing it again soon. There are places I'll remember all my life. Though some have changed. Some forever, not for better. Some have gone, and some remain. All these places have their moments. With lovers and friends, I still can recall. Some are dead, and some are living. In my life, I've loved them all.
of all these friends and lovers, there is no one compares with you. And these memories lose their meaning. When I think of love as something new. Though I know I'll never lose affection for people and things that went before. I know I'll often stop and think about them. In my life, I'll 